questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to explore how our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Dr. Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Malia Jones, Editor-in-Chief at Dear Pandemic, and I'm here today to answer reader questions live, and I'm joined by Dr. Lindsay Leininger of the Tuck Business School at Dartmouth College, and I want to start off as always with a big thank you to our readers. We use the questions that you put in our question box to answer follower questions and figure out what we're going to post about for the upcoming week. And so we really appreciate all the questions you submitted. I do read all of them. And we also, we really appreciate the engagement that you have there and on our page. So thanks for joining us. Lindsay, how are you this morning? I'm okay. Uh, interestingly, I woke up to snow out of oh my, my window. <laughs> um, actually, correction, I woke up to children screaming with glee about snow out the window. Wow. So um, trying to use trying to use some of their glee because <laughs> that was not my initial reaction to seeing snow. Yeah. But it's actually warmed up and uh, it's probably going to be a pretty day, but that was a bit of a shocker to the system. But more uh, to the point of what we're doing today, I wanted to share with our community, we have a new tab on the website. It is trusted resources that we have curated. These are things that we read and listen to and thought leaders we follow on social media. We'll keep updating and adding to it, but we wanted to be sure to share that out with everyone so you know where we get our news often. Yeah, it's a really cool resource. And since we debuted it last week, we've actually added a new section that I'm really excited about, which is resources in languages other than English. So we have a lot of resources in English, the ones that we follow, and also some resources that you might want to share with your friends and family members who speak another language. And for those who are Spanish speakers, Querida Pandemia, our mirror site in Spanish is going gangbusters. So yeah, it's that's a really, really happy, well. really happy addition to the Dear Pandemic family. We've got quite a few questions today. In fact, we had more questions that we wanted to answer than we could handle. So do you want to start off with the first one asking me, Lindsay? I do. So I have the pleasure of asking Dr. Jones the first question of the week. And I'm going to read from my sheet of paper because I'm not so good reading from a screen. So Carla's from New York. Thank you for sending in a question. I saw reports that there is an individual in Nevada with a COVID-19 reinfection. Is this just a one-time thing or are there other people out there getting reinfected? Yep, we got a lot of questions this week about COVID reinfection and it is a really big deal. There were related questions in the question box about 
uh, how reinfection is related to different strains, whether reinfection suggests anything about the, the really long-term effects of having had a COVID infection, like lifelong effects, and the implications of reinfection for vaccine development. So let me just talk sort of generally about what we know about reinfection so far. And I will say emphasis on so far, and I'm going to come back to that idea towards the end here. So based on what we know, you know, as you know, this whole COVID-19 thing is fairly new. And so we're still learning a lot about it. It takes time for some of the information to become available. And it's not just because of the scientific process. It's actually because things change clinically and um, at the population level as the pandemic unfolds, right? So we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of what is likely the first ever person who got COVID-19 sometime in the next, you know, that unknown person probably got infected sometime late last year. And we don't know, you know, we, we've never observed anyone who's had COVID-19 for more than a year. So we do not know what the really long-term effects are. We're still learning. But based on what we know about other closely related viruses, other coronaviruses, we do reasonably expect the, the immunity that comes from having been infected with COVID-19 to wane over time. And based on other coronaviruses, we would expect that to be in the six to 18 month window, that waning of immunity. And what that means is that after, you know, six to 18 months ish, after you've been infected, you could be infected again, infected anew with the same virus, right? So immunity is not lifelong for other coronaviruses. We are now eight or nine months into the pandemic you know, where a lot of people were infected with COVID-19. And so that's about when we would expect to start seeing immunity wane for people who got COVID-19 early on. So it is true that this person in Nevada was was infected with COVID-19 again, anew. And it's also true that that's pretty unusual at this time. We don't, we have not observed a lot of people who've been reinfected, but I think that we are likely to see a lot more cases of reinfection as we get to that time window when immunity will start to wane. And we're also going to be learning a lot more about how long immunity lasts as, as the months continue to unfold here. The other point that I just want to address is the idea of uh, how is this related to different strains of the virus? So we know that this person in Nevada was reinfected and not just had the same infection reemerge later because in a fairly unusual circumstances, he was uh, the infection he had the first time, the virus was isolated and genotyped. And so when he got sick again, they, Geno, they did genotyping on the virus he was infected with, and it was a little different. And so they know that it wasn't just the exact same infection that he already had re-emerging. It was actually a new infection. You know, we've talked before about how genetic drift can occur over time as a, as a virus um, evolves. It's still the case that COVID-19's uh, genetic drift is pretty, pretty small. There's not a good reason to suspect at this point that this is going to have major implications for the vaccine. But, you know, that said, it's it's an unknown. It could actually um, it could actually be important that the virus is evolving for vaccine development as this all unfolds. We have not written about reinfection much yet on Dear Pandemic, and so the link that we're going to drop is actually about 
uh, it's from the Lancet, and we don't normally just hit you with the Lancet, but this is a this is a commentary, and it's pretty approachable. So hopefully, it will be fairly good uh, good background info for for readers. And stay tuned because we yeah, we, we will, will address be writing this. about reinfection. Absolutely, sure. I think this week, right? I think so. Yeah. So. Lindsay, here's your question. Peter from New York City asks us, what are common ways that people distort the risk, both underestimating and overestimating of COVID-19? What mental pitfalls are people using to justify risky behavior or the opposite, severe maladaptive isolation? And he suggests a few pitfalls like denial, logical fallacies, and so on. So I thought this was a really interesting question. I can't wait to hear your answer. I think it's a great question and we could write a dissertation about this. So I, I won't do that for y'all because that would not be nice, but I am going to lean on work that my colleague here at Tech School of Business, colleague, she's Ellie Kyung. She's a cognitive scientist and a marketing professor and she's written on this very topic. And I have written up her work for Dear Pandemic. So we will drop that link in the notes. So those who want kind of a meaty take on it, feel free to read. But the bottom line is this, Uncertainty does a number on our brain's ability to accurately assess risk, and it's not a good number. So sometimes we underestimate risk, sometimes we overestimate risk, but we all need to be aware that our brains are right now in a context that makes us all take some risks we shouldn't be, or perhaps not living our life as enough. You know, we all have that friend who has since the beginning of this, washed their hands, worn their mask, been pretty careful and been real good at pointing out when everybody else has been doing a bad job. But then we learn that that friend goes and throws a rager of a slumber party for their child, right? And it's hard to, it, it's hard to sort of flip those things. And I think there might be that friend. <laughs> Right. So, and, and this, this is a good point to where, where I'm headed to Malia. So here's the thing. You don't have to have malintent. You don't have to be a bad person. You don't have to be a quote unquote Karen to make a mistake like that. Our brains are uniquely bad at accurately assessing risks of activities that we do with people we love and who are close contacts. And Dr. Burks the expert on the president's coronavirus task force has given some pretty stern warning about this, that we are that person when it comes to making our own decisions about risk and our close loved ones. So what do we need to do? We need to check ourselves. We need to say, okay, what would Dr. Fauci say about this activity? Or what would the, you know, what my calling card is, is what would my other nerdy girls say about this activity, right? Y'all would check me. Um, just like I would check you. So I think having external expert guidance, checking your own biases is going to be really important. And let's get real and let's get candid. The holidays are coming. And I feel like we're all going to have our collective guard down about accuracy with risk assessment, because it's a time when we really long to be close with our close contacts and loved ones. We at Dear Pandemic has, have been writing a lot on the holidays with kindness, but also with candor. So please know that we've got you. We've got a lot of content. But just so you know, we all are bad at making accurate risk calculations when it comes to being with our loved ones. So we've got to check ourselves, nerdy girls included. 
I was going to ask if you think that fatigue, you know, pandemic fatigue plays into this. I think it's all a part of it. And I think that's exactly right. I think it's uncertainty. I think it's pandemic fatigue. I think it's this sort of existential malaise that we are all feeling as a society. Anxiety does bad things to the part of our brain that uh, helps with accurate risk assessment. Um, in fact, we were just talking about this, Aparna Kumar, another nerdy, and I with Lauren Ross, who started Project Village, which is all about keeping people healthy mentally um, to help them make better decisions, you know, mm -hmm. on other things. So yes, I think just the, the context we're in is doing rough things on the parts of our brains that make us think wisely. Yeah. Really interesting. So my planned post for this week is actually about how to come up with some shortcuts for risk assessment. And so you can also look forward to that. That's going to go up on Tuesday. And it's just about how to knock out a few of the uncertainties that make it really challenging for us to assess risk in every particular situation, which just gets exhausting, I think. And we do maybe not a great job. I agree. I'm, I'm looking forward to that post. And my post this week is going to be on this sort of like yucky, heavy malaise that has set in. So what um, was the word again? You introduced me to uh, a new word. It's like acedia or a A-C-E-D-I-A. A -A. We can drop a link to it. In okay. The, well, in we'll look notes. forward to it. Okay. It's my turn to ask you a question, Dr. Jones. Okay. Lauren from Madison. Lauren, thank you for writing in. I have to be a poll worker on election day. Although my family and I have been very careful about limiting our potential COVID exposure over the past seven months, I am deeply invested in supporting the democratic process this November 3rd. So I'm willing to accept the added risk that this will entail. Part one, how can I best protect myself from COVID while interacting with hundreds of strangers over the course of many hours at an indoor public polling place? And two, should I plan on any kind of quarantine from my family or pod in the days following the election because of my possible exposure on election day? Dr. Jones? Yeah, well, thank you very much for volunteering, Lauren. That's so important that we not only get out the vote, but also have the election worker, the poll workers to make the voting process go smoothly. This will really help reduce the risk of people having to stand in lines for a really long time and, and so on. So thanks very much for volunteering. And the link we're gonna drop is actually mostly about how to volunteer to be an election worker. So thinking about the risk profile of this situation, I think it's actually really similar to what people who work in healthcare settings face every day as they interact with patients, right? Because they have some challenges implementing some of the SMART guidelines, but maybe are able to boost the other SMART guidelines. So I think um, healthcare workers are at higher risk for getting COVID-19 and in fact, more severe outcomes from COVID-19. But we also see that PPE is effective most of the time at protecting them. And so, I'm gonna encourage you to follow the SMART guidelines as best you can. Some of them are not really possible. Space may or may not be difficult to maintain depending on what part, what they assign you to do at the poll. And so I'm gonna recommend that you boost your personal protective equipment and the, the M for mask, wearing a mask and go to Costco, get some disposable KP94 masks and also a face shield and wear those for the entire time that you're working the polls. And 
I think you might also want to Google how to properly don and doff those PPE and practice wearing them and make sure the fit is really good so that you're not fidgeting with them all day, similar to what healthcare workers do when they're on the job. The, that would be kind of the main thing to boost. In terms of air, if you can improve the ventilation where you're working, that may or may not be possible. You could maybe open windows or prop the door open or something. R for restrict, I'm gonna come back to that last because that addresses your second question. And then time, fortunately the interactions that you will have with, with the people who are voting will be very brief, but you're gonna be exposed to the other people working the polls for the whole day. And so you still need to implement the rest of the guidance there. And if, you, if possible, keep your distance from those other poll workers. And then it's not included in the SMART guidelines, but because of the number of people and the situation here, I, I would also emphasize keeping your hands clean, take your hand sanitizer and use it often. Now, coming back to restrict, you asked about whether you'll need to quarantine after you've had this exposure. And I think you're right that you'll need to be extra careful after election day. We saw here in Wisconsin, we had an in-person election early on in the pandemic and actually very few people got sick after that in-person election, including the poll workers. And so, you know, I don't think it's a guarantee that you're gonna get sick by any means. That said, we have a lot of COVID-19 circulating in Wisconsin right now, so it's not nothing. And I think open communication about what this exposure looks like with the members of your pod is really essential. So if the other members of your pod think that you should be quarantining or perhaps wearing a mask at all times for the time, uh, for the two weeks following election day, then you should do that. And if they are truly restricted, they're not going to potentially spread your infection to the community at large then, and they're comfortable, then you may not need to do that. I think it's really just a personal risk assessment decision on that front. We have, actually, we're a little ahead of time, Lindsay. You want to tackle bonus question? I do. Okay. Well, I mean, I want you to tackle it. There's been a lot of attention over the past week or two to an article in The Atlantic written by economist, public health expert, Emily Oster, Brown University, nerdy girl in spirit. And it suggests, her data that she's crowdsourced suggests that schools are not the cause of super spreading events. This has been hotly debated, uh, and Malia, I would just love to hear your take on this. Yeah, we did get a bunch of questions about this article, and it's certainly been, um, if you follow Epi Twitter at all, it's been all over Epi Twitter debate about this article. And the article's title is, Schools Aren't Super Spreaders. I'll start off by saying that I think uh, probably Dr. Osser did not write the headline to this article. And if she had, I bet she would have written a different headline because the analysis that she performs and the conclusions that she comes to from that analysis really doesn't say that schools aren't super spreaders, right? The, the big takeaway from the descriptive analysis, the data that are available in this study suggests that the schools that she samples and it's a pretty big sample of schools, but it is not a, a random sample or a representative sample. The schools that she samples have not been, they are, haven't been super spreading events so far. And it's very difficult to take that information, that descriptive analysis and conclude that in general, all schools aren't super spreaders for a, for a couple of reasons. And the first one is that is her sample. The sample 
that Dr. Oster has collected is um, schools self-select. They, they volunteer to be in the sample. And so it's not a random sample. It's not representative of all schools in the country. And it also includes all kinds of different approaches to being in school. We have schools that are open as usual. They're open five days a week for the normal hours. We have schools that are hybrid. We have schools that were open and now are closed again and schools that were closed and now are open again. The, the whole are, are not super spreaders is really a straw man. It's not, you know, it's not as simple as that. And making a conclusion like all schools are not super spreaders, uh, you just can't make that conclusion based on the, the mix of data that we have before us here. I will also say that the reason that we're looking at this imperfect sample is because no one else has tried to do this. And so I really want to commend Emily Oster for making an attempt at getting the only data we have about the spread of COVID-19 in schools. Ideally, we would have a random sample of all schools and it, it would be publicly available for you and me to analyze, but we don't. And so I think she's really to be commended for having collected this data and also making it available. If she has a dashboard and you can explore the data yourself and, and figure out what you think about um, the information that's available. The other thing that I'll say about it is that super spreading events are fairly rare. And so, you know, in science, it's next to impossible to prove the non-existence of something. <laughs> And I was listening to a podcast last night that I think is a really good example. There was a study that came out recently that, that found in a totally different field that found that there's a 50-50 chance that all of, all of us are living in a simulation, <laughs> right? So it's a great example of how we can't prove a negative hypothesis. So if our hypothesis is that we're all living in a simulation, like in the movie, The Matrix, you can't prove that's not true. And you also, we can't prove that schools aren't super spreaders. When you are looking for a rare event like super spreading and you haven't observed it yet, it might be because you just haven't observed it yet. You know, it's, it's an unusual kind of event. And so we don't, we can't conclude that schools broadly are not super spreaders just because we didn't observe any super spreading happening in schools. That said, what we did observe is that in the sample that we have, from Dr. Oster's work, the schools that are in that sample seem to be doing so far a pretty good job of harm reduction. And we haven't seen super spreading happening in those schools. Terrific. It's like that old saw, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Yes, exactly. You can never prove a negative hypothesis. Um, that's not how science works. You, you, you can only fail to find support for uh, hypothesis, right? So, so we did, we failed to find, she failed to find support for the hypothesis that schools are super spreading, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen down the line and it doesn't mean it couldn't happen in a different school. And you also can't just broadly conclude that, oh, okay, well, this means that if all schools reopened completely, we wouldn't see super spreading because it's not a continuum like that. You know, we have schools that are already doing pretty uh, intense harm reduction, including being closed in the sample. So if we just reopen schools, that would be quite a different scenario. Things would be different. So can I offer two reflections? Yeah. So the first, something that I really um, appreciate about 
Dr. Oster's work in, and um, Dr. Joseph Allen at Harvard, who's a building scientist, and they have both been arguing loudly that we can't just think about the risk of super spreading. We have to balance this against all the risks we know happen with kids being out of school. And kids being out of school is incredibly harmful. So I like that they're putting in both sides of this equation when they're trying to think through risks. Reasonable people can have different opinions and interpretations, but, but we all must take into account both sides of the equation. And Malia has done some writing on this for Dear Pandemic that I think does a good job of that. I think the second thing I want to add is there has been a real nastiness at the personal level directed at Emily Oster that makes me, it is so unbecoming. <laughs> and I think, you know, again, she should be commended for collecting these data and making them available for other scientists. And frankly, some of the smacks of misogyny and we are not here for that. And I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just add to that, that if we want better data, we should be calling on our, our federal government to collect it. It's not an individual person's job to collect representative, rapidly available data on the spread of COVID in school settings that should be, you know, CDC should be surveilling that. And we just don't have those data from another source. So, all right, let's go to the last question here, which I really love this question. This question comes from Randy from Northern Illinois. Illinois, she said. <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Where am I from? <laughs> Randy from Northern Illinois asks, is it safe to donate blood during the pandemic? I have not donated for many years, but would like to do so through the American Red Cross, but I'm concerned that I'm putting myself at risk since I'm 69 years old. And as an added incentive, American Red Cross is testing for COVID antibodies each time you donate. Randy, thank you for being willing to give blood. Thank you for your question. Good news here. People have been giving blood safely throughout the entirety of this pandemic. And in fact, the Surgeon General is advocating for people to do so. So that's the good news. We are dropping a link to the Red Cross um, in the comments section, which you can actually go and look up where you can give blood. I will say, if you have any particular concerns, talk to your primary care provider before you go do it. But I think this is a, a note of good news. People have been safely giving blood throughout the pandemic. We salute your care for others and um, are delighted you wrote in with this question, Randy. Wear your mask and I, I'll reiterate, thanks very much. I know there's been a blood shortage because a lot of people are concerned about the safety of giving blood and they're constantly calling me to beg me to come in and give blood too. So that is really appreciated. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. So thanks for hanging out with us. We will see you next week for more Q&A. And if you have a question, you should submit it in our question box, which is on our website at dearpandemic.org. We read those every week and we pick some of the themes to tackle for the Q&A and also to tackle in our upcoming week's posts. And while you're there, you can also try searching the keywords in your question. It's really easy to search our website. And we have covered... I counted last night, we're almost to 600 different posts okay. on all kinds of different topics. And so we have a lot of, of practical, scientific and theoretical advice. And so your answer might just be waiting there. 
Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, stay sane. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you have a COVID question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And subscribe to our podcast, I Have Questions, wherever you get podcasts or at anchor.fm slash dearpandemic.